I'll encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. We're looking at a book this morning that the Lord really has used uh, just over the years to overwhelm me personally just with his abundant grace that he has provided us in Christ. Amos chapter 5 is where we look as we're continuing in our Bible reading plan. Uh, We are knee deep in the prophets at this point and making our way through a few of the minor prophets, having already uh, gone through the book of Isaiah, and we're pressing onward. But I can distinctly remember the first time that I read Amos. I mean, I really read it just through the entire book. I was reading for a, a class, which was accurately called The Prophets, right? So now this was a class that had a reputation, all right? This was a class uh, taught by Dr. John Harris. He was the dean of religion at the time. He's since gone to be with the Lord. And uh, he made this class a grueling workload. We had to read the entire book of the particular prophet and the commentary that went along with it in one week and have a six-page paper on it by the end of, by the next class period, right? And so this, the, I mean, it was just constantly reading. So this was the context within which I first read Amos. Now, what I'm grateful for about God's Word is that even when we read it out of dutiful obligation, it is still living and active. And so as I was reading Amos, For this particular class, I became overwhelmed at the state of God's people, and even more, I became overwhelmed at the judgment which God was announcing. So I remember I I was sitting in uh, our dorm room in the common, in the the living area of our dorm room, and I remember just pausing around chapter four and looking up at my roommates and being like, God was angry. Right. And now, of course, they're all having to do the same thing under the same workload I am. Right. And they're like, uh, yeah, whatever. Just keep, like don't, don't bother me. Right. So now here was my problem. Right. And reading Amos and only seeing the judgment and anger of the Lord, which is what I was moved by. I was just really just kind of perplexed and just kind of overwhelmed at just how angry God was. And here Here was my problem. I was so overwhelmed at the definite manner in which God was pronouncing his judgment that I couldn't see the grace in what God was doing and saying. And I want us to see that this morning. As we, I'm going to kind of give us a summation of, of some parts of Amos. We're really going to hammer home here in chapter 5 because chapter 5 is where we see God's grace abound in the midst of judgment. And it helps us to look forward, the book as a whole, to look forward to the ultimate revealing and understanding of God's grace in Christ. So I'm going to ask you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word. As we read from Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. 
and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall, sh shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, as we come before you, uh, I pray, God, that as we read these harsh truths, that you would also help, help us to see how these harsh truths reveal your abounding, sustaining grace, which has been perfectly revealed in, made known in Christ. God, help us to rest securely in Christ. Help us to live confidently in the righteousness which Christ has secured for us. And in doing so, help us as we learn to love you properly through knowing the love of Christ. Help us to abound in love for our neighbor and love for your word and your law. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Church. So want to give us a little context here because it can be easy as you quickly move through the minor prophets to kind of lose track of the timeline, what's happening, where we're at in uh, the you know, summation of things. So uh, in Amos 1, we get a, a great picture of the context, the culture, and the setting in which this book is taking place. And it, in fact, I'll just go ahead and encourage you, turn just a few pages uh, there. It's a, it's a minor prophet, so you don't have to turn too many pages, right? And you see here, um, Amos even humbly names himself as among the shepherds of Tekoa. Later on, and I believe in chapter 7, he, he even plainly states that he was not a prophet by trade. And so we see Amos' humble heart uh, coming that he was simply a shepherd who was given a message from the Lord and was sent to obediently deliver that message. So, and as we see, and as Amos' message develops... The key thing that comes to fruition is that God's justice reigns supreme. If you, if you have one key theme from the book of Amos, it's that. It's that God's justice reigns supreme. So at this time of great turmoil and division in the life of the people of God, there was growing anticipation for the day of the Lord. And this is a statement you see throughout Scripture, really see it a lot throughout the prophets, that the day of the Lord. And so this is the setting, right? The kingdom is divided. We got Judah and Israel. People are going into exile. There was a brief period where here where the Assyrian kingdom has become spread a little too thin. Right? That's the assailing kingdom, and they're, they're spread too thin as they've conquered more territory than they could chew. Right? And this coincided also with the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel having two kings which reigned for longer periods of time than many of their predecessors. You see there in verse 1, 
The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Two years before the earthquake. So now we have an even, even uh, a more pinpointed uh, historical event in which to pinpoint when this book was written. So we have these two kings which reigned for longer periods of time than more of the other kings that reigned again in the two kingdoms. And this stability led to Israel in particular amassing a great amount of wealth. And somewhat it allowed them to kind of build themselves back up and had this renewed sense of pride and also a desire to see Assyria overthrown. So in the minds of the people, this meant God has obviously blessed us and is pleased with us. Now, if you've been tracking along the Bible reading, kind of remember where we're at in this timeline of things, like the very reason that they are where they are under the oppressive rule of a foreign nation is because of God's punishment and judgment against them because he, he did not want to bless them because they, he was not pleased with them. They were not living in accordance to his law. They were not making his name known among the nations or glorifying his name whatsoever. So this led, this attitude of, well, God has obviously blessed us because here we see kind of serious spread thin. We've amassed this wealth. God's blessed us, right? This led to a, a self-righteous attitude of anticipation of the day of the Lord. The people are thinking things are good. We've got a strong king and government. The kingdom has amassed wealth. Life is good. The day of the Lord must be coming when he will subdue these pagan nations and reestablish us, right? That's the, the thinking here of the people. This is the mindset. God has blessed us. The Assyrians are spread thin. So the day of the Lord must be coming when he will just completely do away with this oppressive rule, right? So when we go through the first chapter of Amos, you can imagine the people are, are cheering as they hear all these judgments. I mean, look, just kind of look at the subheadings there. Judgment on Israel's neighbors. So we have judgment against Damascus and Gaza, and we see judgments against Ekron, Tyre, Edom, Ammonites, Right? So you can just imagine the people thinking, the day of the Lord must be coming. We've got all this wealth. And God here through Amos is delivering a message in which he's saying like all these judgments against all these surrounding nations. But then you get to chapter 2. And, the, and when you get to chapter 2, you start with transgressions against Moab. But then you go to verse 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So now, you know, the people in Israel are kind of thinking, oh, that's kind of close to home. But we're the better kingdom anyway, so like, you know, Judah, we told y'all y'all were wrong. Y'all should have stuck with us, right? So this kind of, you can imagine the mindset of the people here. But then we go to verse 6, where God begins to levy his judgment against Israel for their egregious 
profaning of his covenant. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. So God's saying, you've profaned my covenant, my law, so you don't love me. And also, they sell the righteous for silver. So you don't, you don't love each other. You don't love others. So who are you to look forward to the day of the Lord is kind of the reality of what God is levying. So you begin to, from there, it just continues with judgment and announcement of judgment against Israel and repetition of Israel's guilt and the punishment that is coming because of that. And so you continue to move forward and this begins to, you can see as I was reading this, I'm kind of like, man, like where's the hope here? Right? And so you get to our text for today. You get back to verse, chapter 5, rather. And verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. So this is God saying in no uncertain terms, you are dead. You're already dead. The Lord is singing a song of lamentation over them. He's singing at their funeral is what we see here. And what is his plea? Hear this word. Take heed of where you stand with me. Now, there are three truths here which I want us to take from just this first verse alone and kind of the summation of, of the first part of the book here. God has spoken against sin. Now, that's, that's one of like, well, duh, pastor, right? Like, we know that. God's rebuke of rebellious sinfulness is crystal clear throughout all Scripture. But here's the thing, church. We must grasp the complete sinfulness of our flesh. Because we can, we can hear a truth like that. We can hear God has spoken against sin. And we can subconsciously place ourselves outside the aim of that scope. As if it doesn't really include us. In order for us to have a proper biblical worldview, we must know that we are sinners and God has spoken against sin. The only way we can glorify God is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and obey his law and commands. But we can't do this on our own. We can't do this on our own. And that's what the people are having to come to harsh realities with. Like God, time and again, has sent prophets, has sent leaders to lead them according to his word. He's given them his law that they may follow him and worship him and love him and know him. And then therefore, out of that love for him and the love that he has for them, love others that his name may be made known among the nations. But they can't do it on their own and neither can we. That's why God laments over sin. Now consider that for a moment, would you, here in verse 1. Hear this word that I take up in lamentation over you. That, this 
idea of lament and lamentation carries with it this longing, this desire for things to not be the way that they are, this, this hurtfulness. The almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God laments. And his lamentation is over that which we have done against him, that is, profane his holy name and abuse his grace. Now, as we shall see, the context of this lamentation is not that of a God who, helpless, who is helplessly weeping in response to something happening which, is not, which he is not in control of, as if there could even be such a circumstance, Right? No, he's lamenting because of the necessary punishment of their sin. You see, now when we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, then therefore we see like we can be overwhelmed. God is lamenting. That's, that's tough. It's a hard thing to kind of wrestle with. But then we also have to ask ourselves, what would cause God to sing a funeral song of lament over his people? What has happened or what is going to happen that has sealed their impending doom? Because as we're going to see, it's not just that, oh, you've sinned against me and I'm hurt. It's not the idea of the lament here. Kind of go back a little bit to chapter 4 and you see why God is lamenting over his people. Starting in verse 1, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, though People of Bashan were known for worshiping cows, right? And so he's calling them by what they've adopted, which is idolatrous practices, right? And so he's, he's not even saying, hear this word, my people. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. So he's saying, like, like this day is coming, and you're not going to be able to sit on it just gleefully waiting and watching for it. You're going to be a part of it drugged with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Hermon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Like, I've seen all these idolatrous practices that you've been doing. Come on, bring it. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, that which is leaven, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. It was like, you think I haven't seen all of this? I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. So here's where you begin to see God's lamenting, right? He's like, I've, I've seen your sinfulness, and I responded to it. Cleanness of teeth. If you've got clean teeth, it means you're not eating, right? That's, that's the idea. And lack of bread in all your places. So he's not saying I gave you toothbrushes and toothpaste, right? He's like, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. Like, I took away your food so that you would realize how dependent you were on me. And you didn't come back. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on the other city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. 
So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water, would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Like, I, I would show, like, I'm the one in control here. It's raining over here, and it's not raining over here. Figure out why, people. And then it's like, look, you still didn't return to me. You had to wander around and beg your neighbor for food. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Like I went as far as to punish some and sin. So that you would see the results of sinfulness. So that you would see the results of living according to your own law. And you still didn't return to me. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out from burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So he said, I showed you grace time and time and time again to punish you, to punish your sin. That was my grace so that you would return to me. And you did not return. So you would not meet me in repentance. So now you will meet me in judgment. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now, now this is the third point that I just want us to take kind of from, from all of this, right? So, so far, those first two points we've seen that God has spoken against sin and he laments over our sin. And we've seen why he laments. He laments because he's shown grace and he's made himself known in his word that we might come to him and he laments because we won't come. And so he says, if you won't, Meet me in repentance. You'll meet me in judgment. So the reality here that this reveals and that we need to know moving forward into the rest of this message is that we are saved from God. Now I can remember when I first heard that truth preached. And my first reaction, right, was to, to inwardly recoil a bit. I mean, I, all I had heard was that God is love, he's loving, he's gracious, merciful, all of which is 100% true. However, how does love sometimes have to express itself when the one whom you have set your love on engages in activity which goes directly against your love, goes against what is best for them, and they do so repeatedly? Parents, how many of us have had to discipline our children time and again because we love them too much to let them continue to think that it is appropriate to behave in the manner in which they do. So not just here in Amos, but all throughout Scripture, it's abundantly clear that the main thing which afflicts us is our natural sinful condition. And God's just response against sin is judgment. God is the just judge of all the earth, and he will do what is just. Therefore, that which we are ultimately saved from is God's judgment against sin. Now, you might be saying to yourself, 
man, this is a really inspiring message, Pastor. Right? Like, I'm, I'm feeling really hopeful here. All right, so we keep reading. Verse 2 of chapter 5. And we continue to see the dire condition that God is elaborating here. And he lets them know what this lamentation, this funeral song that he's singing, what does it sound like? Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. So they're fallen and there's no one there to pick her back up. Like, I've picked you up time and again. I've shown you opportunity time and again to pick yourself up and to return to me in repentance. Verse 3, for thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. So I I multiplied you greatly. I, I gave you prominence in the land that you might glorify my name among all the nations. The city that went out in a thousand, that's that, that, that glorification, that lifting up, that prompting up is not happening anymore. Shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So they're already dead. They have walked the path of death by pursuing their own desires and living according to their own law. And so here's what I want us to see here is to ignore God's word is to ignore the path of life. Because his word has revealed his grace time and again to, if you walk this path, submit to me, your life looks like this. This is the, what I intended. If you walk your way, I'm going to continue to show you grace and I'm going to say, no, get back over here. You don't want to be over there. Get back over here. And he said, you did not return. To ignore God's word is to ignore the path of life. God's law is the standard of good which we can't set nor achieve for ourselves. We make attempts, countless attempts, to set a standard of good for ourselves or for others or in our world, and it is all crumbles time and again. God's law is the enduring standard of good. The problem at the core of the prophets here is that the people who were given God's law, have profaned it, rebelled against it continuously. So through his servants, the prophets, God is putting his people on trial while decisively pointing to the future hope of Christ. And there it is. That's where we continue to look. As we look and we think about the prophets and delivering this message, Peter enlightens our understanding in this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 10, we read this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So Peter says, and looking back through the lens of the cross now, he says, look, the prophets tried to let us know. So it's not some opaque, hard-to-understand message. It's not that the Old Testament isn't satisfactory to point us to Christ. It's inquiring of what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. Verse 12 of 1 Peter 1. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter says, look, God revealed to the gospel, to the prophets, that he might, they might pronounce it and point the remnant forward in hope. And now Peter's saying, on this side of the cross, we get to see it and know it and feel it and, and have it tangible to us. And remember, how is it that Jesus summarizes the law? Love God and love others. So through Amos, God is saying, again, you don't love me, and nor do you love others that much either. But watch this. Watch how God's grace continues to abound. We pick back up in verse 4 of chapter 5. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. So what does God say from the midst of his funeral song? Seek me and live. Seek me and live. He's said all of this. Like, look, I I did all of this and you did not return. I did this and you did not return. I did this and you did not return. And so now you're fallen. No more to pick back up. But seek me and live. Continue, verse 5, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba or Gil, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. So if you want to go the way of the pagan nations, just continue doing what you're doing. But if you want to live, if you want the path to life, seek me. And how has God revealed himself? In his word. So here, even in the face of judgment, God extends grace once again. Seek me and live. This call goes out to all the world. Seek me and live. What is the response of sinful man? No. And so this brings us to a crucial question. Because the thing at work here is they profane God's law, God's word, and therefore profane God's name. What purpose does the law serve if we can't keep it? Our inability to keep the law points to the complete holiness of God, thus revealing the complete sinfulness of our hearts. So I'm reading this in college, right? And I'm like, man, where's the hope, God? You know what else our inability to keep the law reveals? is our complete dependence on a Savior. We've seen that we're we're saved from God. We're also saved by God. So God says to his people here, you can't love me. And you can't love my law. You continue reading if you jump down to verse 18 of chapter 5. He says it in very certain terms. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. 
So he's saying, like, look, you're looking forward to the day of the Lord. This is what it looks like for you and where you stand now. It's like, look, you can run from the lion, but a bear is going to get you. Or you're going to go in the house and lean your hand against the wall and a serpent's going to bite you, right? It's, it's not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. So you continue to go through the motions as if you're offering up yourselves to me when all you're doing is exactly that, just going through the motions. So whether or not that day will be glorious or lamenting completely depends on where you stand with God. And the only way to stand righteous before him is to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own. So how do we get to this place? How do we get to where we can love God's law? How do we get to where we can love our neighbor? By having a heart that is fully surrendered to him. We read this in 1 John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So how did God make his love known amongst us and how did he show it tangibly in Christ? Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in this is love, not that we could do certain amount of offerings and sacrifices and continuously go through the motions. In this is love, not that we would go on this mission trip or make sure that we're in church this much or be, on, be there on Wednesdays as well and do all this and that and serve on this committee or what not. It's that in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sin. And now here's the kicker, because the problem here is that they don't love God and they can't love God. John also says this, because, because this is also overflowing in the fact that they aren't loving others. And that's God's law. It can be summarized, love God, love others. Beloved, if, this verse 11 of 1 John 4, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the common denominator here between the prophets and the church, how do the prophets speak to the church? Through Christ. The prophets look forward to the hope of Christ's coming while living in the confidence of God's law. And where do we see that here? The church looks forward to Christ's second coming while living in the confidence of God's grace and Christ's fulfillment of the law. And so the problem is things were out of order amongst the people of God here. And what we can't do is this. Transformation without regeneration saves no one. Do not attempt acts of mercy for the purpose of earning grace. And God's like, you're not even doing that to his people here. The message here for the church is to love Jesus wholeheartedly. And in that, you can finally show a properly ordered love for your neighbor. So don't try to get it twisted or you will find a song of lament being sung over you. 
The only way to come to Christ is to repent of sin, believe in him, and then his righteousness becomes ours. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you now, hearing the truth of your word, knowing that sacrifices offered up heartlessly, obligatorily amount to nothing. There's no amount of moral deeds that we can mount up. But God, in Christ, you have made possible for us to stand righteous before you so that when justice rolls down, like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream we need not fear the day of the Lord but we can stand confidently in the righteousness won for us at the cross of Christ God I pray that you would help us as your church to rightly align our desire for morality our desire to live according to your word But don't let that, God, please don't let us get it out of order where we attempt to do so in a manner to earn grace. God, let us honor you by submitting to Christ. And I pray for anyone here that does not know this good news, that does not know, has not submitted to the work of Christ on the cross, trusted in you for salvation, that you would draw them to yourself. Move them forward in repentance at this time. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.